again. Turn with me to 1 Chronicles, the third chapter. This morning we're going to cover the life of King David. That's a tall order. And um, 1 and 2 Samuel are the main books that talk about David's life. His kingship ran 40 years. David to the Jewish people is um, the perfect king. And even though King Arthur has a historic background is mainly myth, it's similar to the English people and King Arthur, the perfect king. The ideal king. In Acts, the 13th chapter, the 22nd verse, we won't turn there, but it says that David was a man whose heart was in tune with God. And David's heart being in tune with God is shown in many ways in his life and in his rule. We have the Psalms, the songbook of Israel, to a great extent because of King David. His Psalms were the foundation of the inspired songbook that we still sing today. And in those songs, there are many lessons about our relationship to God and prophecies of the Messiah to come. His deep spirituality is shown in keeping the worship of God pure and establishing music and worship, the establishing of choirs, orchestras, music directors, and composers. He established Jerusalem as the center of worship, and he set the stage for the building of the temple. Many events of his life are recounted in the Psalms and reveal his trust in God during difficult times and his praise to God in times that are good. King David made Israel a secure and an established kingdom. He was a warrior who defeated all of God's enemies and Israel's enemies. He united the tribes and he established the rule of God's law. In Kings and Chronicles, it is continually said that a king did or did not do that which was right in the sight of the Lord. He did and he did not do according to his father, David. For example, in 2 Kings, the 14th chapter. Second Kings 14, verse 3, is one of the many examples that is here. And he, the king, did what was right in the eyes of Jehovah, yet not like David his father. He did in all things as Joash his father had done. So David is the example, he's the pattern for the kingship in Israel. And if you have not yet done an a in-depth study of David's life, especially in the study of Samuel, it would be a worthwhile for your devotional time. 
But sadly to say, David also had another side, also reflected in the historic books of the Bible. And in this passage of First Chronicles, we see, um, reading between the lines, um, in this non-judgmental recitation of a part of David's life, First and Second Chronicles are very difficult because they're chapter after chapter of genealogies. And it's so easy for us to pass them over, are so easy for us to just read them quickly, and yet we rob ourselves because if we dig deeply in the genealogies, there's a lot we can learn. And here's one example today, starting in First Chronicles 3, verse 1. These are the sons of David who were born to him in Hebron. The firstborn Amnon by Ahinoam, the Jezreelite. The second Daniel by Abigail, the Carmelite. The third Absalom, whose mother was Maacah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. The fourth Adonijah, whose mother was Hagith. The fifth Shephatiah by Abital the sixth Ethrium by his wife Eglah. Six were born to him in Hebron, where he reigned for seven years and six months. And he reigned 33 years in Jerusalem. And these were born to him in Jerusalem, Shemaiah, Shobab, Nathan, and Solomon, four by Bathshua, the daughter of Amiel. Then Abhar, Elishama, Elithalet, Noga, Nepheg, Jephia, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliphalet nine. These were David's sons, besides the sons of the concubines, and Tamar was their sister. Aren't you glad you didn't have to read that section of scripture? And what's nice about it, even if I didn't pronounce them correctly, who would know? <laughs> This passage relates, as I said, in a non-judgmental uh, non way, the genealogy of King David, his wives and his children. And that's despite the fact that in Deuteronomy 17, 17, we won't turn to it, we'll have other passages we'll be turning to, it's God stated in the law that the king should not multiply wives as the heathen do. They were to be one women men. That's always been the standard of God since creation. And here it was the standard for the kings of Israel who were to be different than the kings of the world. But David and so many other of the kings of Israel followed the pattern of the world anyway, contrary to what God had said. In other words, David had a royal harem, and it was of significant size. He followed his desires and was no doubt a womanizer. Now that shocks us today because the standard for the rule in the church today that's been enforced for 2,000 years is that church leaders are to be faithful to one woman. And even our cultural standards have, have reflected the, the, the uh, law of God and the influence of the Christian church on our culture. And even though Often our culture is not biblically based. David's actions would not be approved of even 
by non-Christians in our society today to a great extent. But it even gets worse. As we dig into the details here, we see that David attained one of his wives through adultery and murder. Not only violating the law of not multiplying wives, but of committing adultery and committing murder too, contrary to the Ten Commandments. Now, this text doesn't explicitly say this. Like I said, it's non-judgmental. It doesn't make any judgments here about what, Jay, uh, 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 what David did. But we understand when we understand the story from the other sections in Samuel that David and Bathsheba, the woman mentioned here, here presented as Joshua, uh, Bathsheba, not Bathsheba, he got her pregnant. He tried to cover it up. When it didn't work, she had, he had her husband murdered, even though he was a godly man and an exemplary soldier. David's violation brought God, of God's law brought upon him severe punishment, as we'll see later on. David's first wife isn't even mentioned here. That's a sordid story in itself. David's first wife was the daughter of the previous king, King Saul. She died childless. She protected David when he was fleeing from her father Saul, but refused to go with David into exile and sided with her father. And then she agreed with her father to be given to another man whom she married, despite being married to David. And later, when David was negotiating with the leaders of Israel to take the throne of Israel, part of that negotiation was forcing Saul's daughter to return to him to leave her new husband. And we see in 1 Chronicles 15, 29, that she regarded David with contempt for the rest of her life. This passage tells us that when David ruled from Hebron over Judah and Saul's descendants, the other tribes, David had six sons born to him by six different women in verses 1 through 4. One of them was a princess, probably, as happened so many cases back then, that, that marriages were arranged in order to bring peace between kingdoms. It was politically expedient, and one reason for the royal harems in that day. Aren't you glad, women, that you weren't married to keep two families from killing each other through an arrangement that you might not have liked? And while in Jerusalem ruling all the tribes, David had four sons through Bathsheba, whom he committed adultery with, who he covered up that adultery, and killed the man, dedicated soldier of his own forces. David had nine other sons also by mothers whose names are not even listed. And then it says he had many more children through concubines, probably slave women. David, as all humans do, had a sin nature and fell short of God's glory. 
Now, what do we learn from this history of David, both good and sordid? Acts says he was a man after God's own heart. Was David righteous or was he not? Was David an example or was he not? Was David a man after God's own heart or was he not? Well, the truth often does not lie in the extremes, does it? He wasn't a righteous man. None of us are. None are righteous. No, not one. But yet, on the other hand, he did not forsake God even in the midst of all his sin. Let's make application now. What are we to make of this, and how does that apply to our lives as believers? Firstly, let us consider the justification of God. Turn with me to Romans, the eighth chapter. We have these wonderful proclamations made by the apostle. I memorized this chapter very early in my Christian life. Verse 1 of Romans 8 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. What a wonderful thought. Verse 31, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who? shall separate us from the love of Christ. Saints are saints because they are not perfect. We are saints despite our sin nature and our failures. Though we might wonder where David's heart really was at time in his moral failings, we must also balance that with a sincere and thorough repentance that is recorded in the Psalms. For instance, Psalm 51. A wonderful psalm anytime we sin and want to give proper repentance before God. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, 
and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Look at the title of this psalm. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. This is David's repentance psalm. And whenever we study the life of David in the historic sections, we should always read the psalm that had to do with that section. It's too bad it's not tied that way in the Bible to read the section and read the psalm. It takes a little bit of work, but it's well worth the reward when we do so. We must see one another through the filter of Christ and not through the filter of our sins. In 2 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, the 16th verse, it tells us this, from there from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard them thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is passed away. Behold, the new is come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We are to know ourselves, and we are to know each other through Jesus Christ and to see each other in the light of Jesus Christ and the redemption that he has purchased for us. David was fully faithful in the purity of God's worship. He made a nation that was faithful to God's law. He made right judgments as king. There are sins of the flesh and sins of the Spirit. And when we compare King David with King Saul, and indeed so many other the kings of Israel, we see that distinction being made. It is the sins of the Spirit that condemn us, not the sins necessarily of the flesh, if we have proper repentance and faith in God. Lack of faith rejection of God, no repentance towards Him. These are the sins that condemn us. These are the sins that give us trouble. Turn with me to 2 Kings 22. Verse 18. Josiah has found the law of God and has read it, being presented to him by the priests. 
and he tears his clothes in distress because he says, based on this law, we are condemned before God as a nation. And the prophet sends to him this message, but to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of Jehovah, thus you shall say to him, thus says Jehovah, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent and you humbled yourself before Jehovah when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse. And you have torn your clothes and wept before me. And also, I also have heard you, declares Jehovah. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place. And they brought word back to the king. God honors a repentant heart. God honored Josiah's repentance and prayer. And he said, I'm going to save you from the time of judgment because of your heart before me. Turn now to 1 Kings 21. We have another example of a repentant king, only this king much more wicked than was Josiah. 1 Kings 21, picking up at verse 25. The king has taken the vineyard of a man who would not sell his vineyard to the king. And his wicked pagan wife arranged it that this man should be killed and all his heirs so the king could confiscate his property. And it says here in verse 25, There was none who sold himself to do what is evil in the sight of Jehovah like Ahab whom Jezebel, his wife, had incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols as the Amorites had done, whom Jehovah cast out before the people of Israel. And when Ahab heard those words, the previous words, which we're not going to read, but words of condemnation to him, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of Jehovah came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring disaster in his days, but in the day, his son's days will I bring upon disaster in his house. Ahab was the most wicked of kings. Ahab committed sins of the Spirit, but when he humbled himself before God Almighty, God passed over the judgment for him and passed it on to the next generation that would not follow the Lord. See how God prizes true, true, prizes true repentance? Even in very wicked circumstances, God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they repent and live, says the prophet. 
So where it comes to David, as Jesus said in regard to the woman's caught in adultery, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. David's humility and repentance before God is an example for us all. So why does one adulterer and murderer go to hell and another adulterer and murderer go to heaven? Faith. Without faith it is impossible to please God, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. We must believe. Why was one thief on the cross told that he would be that day with Jesus in paradise and the other thief on the cross was given no such assurance? Faith. With faith, all his sins were washed away, while for the other who had no faith, his sins remained. Why will adulterers be in heaven while others who did not commit adultery may not be there? Faith. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, while those not in Christ are condemned already. May we understand very clearly what the Westminster Confession says. There is no sin so small that it does not deserve our damnation. Even though we may be right, more righteous than David was, we are just as condemned as he is. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. There's none righteous, no, not one. But also the confession states next in that section, there is no sin so great that it will not be forgiven upon repentance and faith in Christ. Oh, you who think maybe you have little sin and don't need Christ, condemnation is yours. Because you have not put your faith in Christ, you have condemnation sitting on your head already. But those of you who have committed great sin and are condemning yourself in your heart and cannot lift up your head before God because of the shame of it, there is no condemnation because of repentance and because of the blood of Christ covering you and because of your trusting in that shed blood of Christ. Lift up your head. Your, your sins are removed from you as far as the east is from the west. Secondly, let me get my... Secondly, we must be careful about judging people according to a snapshot in their life. Life is not a Polaroid picture where you take the picture and out it comes, you look at that picture and that's the way that person is and that's the way that person will always be. We're always changing, especially in God's grace as believers. We must take a look at the full view of a person's life and understand that people change, that people come to repentance. About 10 years ago, somebody was very obnoxious in the church and left and didn't join another church. 
And 10 years after they're leaving, I get a letter in the mail asking for forgiveness because they'd been so obnoxious while they were in the church. I had no idea that was going on in the person's life. But it happens. God works. I ministered to somebody. Didn't go anywhere. I, I prayed. I taught. Came to church for a while. And then got worse. Ten years later, he showed up at church and he said, I've had a terrible time. My life was fully falling apart. And you gave me some books and I have read them recently. And I fell on my knees in my bedroom and I cried out to God to save me. And he says, I've been saved. And he says, since that time, I've not had a drop of alcohol and I want to continue following the Lord. He and I met together for Bible study weekly for three years and now the replacement pastor has been doing so for four years. He has not gone back to it. His life has changed. We believe in grace. If I didn't believe in change, if I didn't believe in repentance, if I didn't believe that God could work in lives, I'd leave the pulpit another preach again. And even though it isn't as common as I'd like to see, we don't live in times of revival, God is still working. His word does not return void. And we must not judge people from a certain point in their life, but we must be following and understand the work of God. Thirdly, while David did things from time to time that were very blameworthy, we must be careful not to judge him, especially by our standards 3,000 years later with progressive revelation and the coming of the Messiah. We don't have kings ruling by divine right anymore, although I think there's a few leaders today that, that feel they, they are that way. Um, we don't have harems anymore generally, except maybe among the Arab population. Um, but Mainly in Western world, there are no harems. We're surely not exchanging women around to make political alliances. But despite that, rulers our day are similar to David. In their pride and their power, they do some of the same things that David did. But one thing that is missing out of their lives is the repentance and change that David had. We must know people by their totality. And Galatians says, walk by the Spirit and not after the flesh, for the flesh wages against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh so that you do not do the things that you want to do. It's a daily battle, brothers and sisters. Don't you feel it every day? The pulls of the flesh, those besetting sins, those things you just can't ever seem to fully be free of. And then at other times, all of a sudden, turn around and say, I had a problem in that area, but thank God. He's worked that out of my life, at least as long as I'm close to him. When I stray a little bit, it comes back. But we all struggle, and we must walk like David in struggling over the flesh. And some days we will lose. And some days, by God's grace, we will win. But on those losing days, our forgiving God is there when we humble ourselves before Him. Fourthly, 
we must be careful about cancel culture where people's sins are always held against them and one of their sins may be magnified and everything else in their life completely overshadowed. There must be place for redemption and acceptance again as the church practices in excommunication and restoration. If we let one sin stand against everything else, we're all going to be canceled. We must allow for redemption and forgiveness. The cancel we must be concerned about is not the canceling of an ungracious society, but the cancellation forever and eternity by God if we do not have our sins taken away by repentance and faith in Christ. And those who like to cancel others must beware that they may be canceled themselves by God because they've rejected Jesus Christ, because they're standing in self-righteousness. And those they have canceled may actually be safe in heaven. While today we might cancel the kingship of David, that is not the approach that God took. David did not receive the death penalty, which would have been just for the sins that he committed. Why? Because there's another standard for kings? No. Because David was at a heart a man who loved and followed God despite his failure. There was no other man in the whole nation who overall would be better to have as king as the history of the kings of Israel show clearly. David's own son, Solomon, would fall into paganism through his thousand wives and concubines. And then after his rule, the kingdom would be split in judgment. Shall we cut out of the Bible all the Psalms of David because he was an adulterer and murderer? Joseph in Egypt wasn't a murderer. Joseph in Egypt kept himself from adultery. But Joseph wrote none of the Psalms and gave no prophecy of the Messiah. We must be careful in our judgments. This is a contradiction. Some of the most faithful men can be some of the most unfaithful at times. Who would have made Peter, who denied Jesus and said he wouldn't deny Jesus, the leader of the apostles to give the first sermon and to be the lead to take the gospel to the Gentiles before the apostle Paul, and who later on showed hypocrisy by opposing and being hypocritical in his attitudes towards the Jewish and Gentile divisions of the church, who Paul had to rebuke to his face. And while it is appropriate to remove people from ministry or church membership or marriage, it is also appropriate to restore people upon true and thorough repentance. Who would have made Paul the lead evangelist of his day, the persecutor of the church in Jesus Christ, who sought out people and arrested them to take them and, and was there to, to watch them be killed because of their faith in Christ? Fifthly, David's sin is a warning to us all. David's remaining as king and being considered a godly man before God must not be seen by us as an excuse to sin 
are to think we will turn out okay if we have a lax attitude towards sin. David received God's fatherly discipline and punishment as seen in the family turmoil that resulted in his own family. And you can read that sordid story. His own son, whom he didn't think punished a brother enough for incest with his sister, ended up seeking to remove David from the throne. He was forced to flee Jerusalem. And this was just some of the turmoil that David had and came into his life because of his ungodly influence in his own family. Turn with me to 2 Samuel, the 7th chapter. And we hear God's judgment on David. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says Jehovah, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and delivered you out of the hand of Saul and gave you your master's house and your master's wives. It wasn't even David's wives. He also had all Saul's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why did you have to go after one more woman? You had your own harem. You had Saul's harem, and it wasn't enough for you. You couldn't be satisfied with it. Why have you despised the word of Jehovah to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says Jehovah, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, his own son, to unseat him from the throne. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son, which Absalom did. And that's too sordid to even talk about in a morning sermon. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against Jehovah. And Nathan said to David, Jehovah has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned Jehovah, the child who is born to you will die. And Nathan went to his house. Just because we get forgiveness of sins does not mean there will not be consequences for those sins that we've committed. Everything may not turn out fine in our sin, though we may be forgiven. It would be better not to sin than to sin and be forgiven because there's no consequences to no sin. There are consequences to sin even upon repentance. It is easier to break a marriage than to repair a marriage. It is easier to ruin a reputation than to build a reputation. It is easier to be rejected for ministry than be accepted in the ministry. And there is no guarantee that our heart is like David's was at its core 
and that God may not, contrary to David, remove us from doing good we might have done if we had stood firm against sin. Look at the great Joseph, good that Joseph did in Egypt because he refused the advances of Potiphar's wife. He ended up in jail, but he rose second in command in Egypt. He did no wrong to his master, and he was able to be useful for God. Useful for God in ways David couldn't be. God refused to allow David to build the temple because he was a man of bloodshed. David wanted to build that temple for God so bad, but God said, no, you're a man of bloodshed. I will not allow it. David's son moved even further with the pagan women added to his harem and God's judgment resulting in the dividing of the kingdom of Israel. If we have a specific sin we are toying with in our lives right now, remove it. As Jesus said, it's better to cut off your hand and enter life whole than to enter life whole having, having kept it. If it is like a torch that may scorch our hearts and bring us to ruin, we may never recover. But if we have sinned, it need not be the end of the world. If we confess, repent, and seek to bring God glory in the future, great good still may come. God still may be honored and glorified, even a life that has filled him miserably because of repentance and a heart that seeks him. Let us pray. Lord, I pray that each of us this morning might stand before you as the publican. Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. And yet we would come to the throne of grace boldly. And as we come to this communion table, that we would do so with great humility and remorse, but with great boldness and joy because of the salvation that we have in Christ Jesus, that we are no longer condemned. No one can bring a charge against us. That great accuser, Satan's words will not stand because of God justifies who is the one who condemns. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Church House located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.